Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey guys, welcome to episode 14 of The Long War. My name is Zach Twombly and as always, I am your host for When Diplomacy Fails. This is a podcast in which we look at the build-up to, break-out of, and consequences of different wars in history. And if this is your first time listening to us, you're very, very welcome. Make sure to... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Check out the back catalogue and make sure to check out the website wdfpodcast.com for more. For now though, I'm not even going to rant and ramble as I normally do at the start of these episodes. I would encourage you guys to check out patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and of course to be fit. But other than that, I would just like to say a huge thanks for all your guys' support and enjoy the latest episode. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Long War 
episode 14. If you're wondering, I am actually in a different position now to where I normally am when I record, so if this episode sounds a bit weird, then this is probably why. The reason why I'm in a different room to normal is because I'm married, and my wife is a nurse, and sometimes she needs to nap, and that is really why I'm in the back room of the apartment rather than the bedroom where I normally record, and it's very upsetting for my OCD senses, but I don't really think it matters all that much. If you guys notice any weird noises or trains going by, or loud random beeping, then that would be why. But in any case, we are recording, we are providing the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails on the Long War, and I'm really excited to get into this. Last time we brought you guys through the confusing summer months of 1683. We examined how Kara Mustafa managed to so confound his enemies by marching through a series of obstacles set in front of him by the Habsburgs. For so long assumed impassable or impregnable through a combination of good intelligence gathering, tenacious willpower and the effective use of coercion, the Grand Vizier was able to push his huge armed host of at least 100,000 men over the river Rabba past Gior and into the lands immediately in front of Vienna. With Charles of Lorraine disorientated and his men scattered, it seemed that only Vienna itself could resist the Ottoman advance. As we'll see in this episode, those last few precious days before the Turks arrived outside the gates of Vienna were perhaps the most crucial in Habsburg history, for they prepared the citizens and soldiers alike for the most arduous of tests to come. Without wasting any more time then, let's just get into it. I will now take you to the 9th of July, 1683. While Europeans regarded Sultan Mehmed IV with a mixture of disdain and distaste, Kara Mustafa was the enemy incarnate. The attack on Vienna was seen with reason as his personal malign intention conceived from his deep hatred of the West in all its works. Historian Andrew Wheatcroft describes the attitude of the West towards the Grand Vizier. Luigi Fernandino had done his best. As a cousin of Raimondo Montecuccoli, this sharp-tongued Bologna nobleman had been tasked with inspecting Habsburg fortifications along the length of the River Raba, where the fortress of Gior, among several others, resided. Fernandino, better known to posterity as Count Marsigli, had visited Constantinople in 1680, learned some Turkish along the way, and returned to Gior when it was noted that someone of his station was required in early 1683 to repair the fortifications at Gior and prepare them for an attack. Gior was in desperate need of upgrade, so Marsigli had set to work, yet it was when he was assigned the task of examining the wider area surrounding Gior that Marsigli uncovered some of the most startling and profoundly unsettling facts of his life. Having long since rested on their laurels, the government in Vienna had assumed that Gior, Cormorum and other tough fortresses along the Danube and its tributaries would block any Ottoman advance, while the general difficulties in traversing the region, thanks to the 
Plentiful bogs and marshes would grant the defender a worthy advantage and seriously hamper any assault from the Hungarian plain. These assumptions, Count Marsigli discovered over the spring of 1683, were based on information that had no basis in reality. The river Raba defensive line, far from impregnable, was full of holes. The marshes, far from impassable, presented only a mild inconvenience when paths through the region were discerned. The river Raba itself, far from insurmountable, was easily fordable at several points. Presenting this information to an equally startled court in Vienna, Marsigli was then tasked with updating the defences. It was his responsibility to fortify and improve 38 strong points along the opposite side of the river Raba and to destroy any remaining bridges which the Turks could conceivably use. This Herculean task, assigned two months before the Ottomans were due to arrive before Gior in the first days of July 1683, was a next to impossible one. During his work, Marsigli faced constant stonewalling from the garrison, who did not wish to venture out from Gior at all to carry out the necessary preparations, as well as from the local populace themselves, who repeatedly repaired his bridges across the river for their own convenience. Mustering as many work parties as he possibly could, Marsigli sought personally to insulate Gior and the vulnerable countryside across the river Raba from Ottoman invasion, and some eyewitnesses recalled the 25-year-old nobleman actually taking part in some of the works in an effort to inspire the work crews. In short, by the time the Ottomans appeared before Gior, Luigi Fernandino, Count Marsigli, had done his best. And yet, his best was not good enough. Confounding the naive expectations of the Gior garrison, the officials in Vienna and Charles of Lorraine, Karim Mustafa pushed his men ever onwards, and the Turkish auxiliaries forded the river at several points up and downstream, to the point that Lorraine himself was nearly caught out in a pincer movement outside of the great Habsburg bastion. As he fled towards Vienna, Lorraine may well have lamented that more had not been done to prevent the Ottomans nearly destroying him before the gates of Gior. And yet, it had to be said, and we've said it before, Luigi Fernandino had done his best. At this stage, there seemed literally nothing the Habsburgs could do to halt either the advance of Kar Mustafa's army, or the advancement of the deep pangs of fear in the hearts of their citizenry. The Turk was clearly on his way, and after so many months and weeks of dallying, Vienna was now in danger for the first time in over 150 years. This was where we left our narrative last time. As Leopold evacuated his home in Vienna and made for safer surroundings, the city seemed abandoned to its fate. Only the resources and reserves of its appointed commander, Starenberg, and the timely reinforcement from Lorraine stood between the citizens of Vienna and their new Ottoman overlords. Perhaps because their nerves had rendered them placid, or perhaps because they genuinely did want to help, from the 9th of July 1683, frantic work to prepare the walls of Vienna and its surrounding regions for a lengthy siege began in earnest. First up was the restructuring and resetting of the wooden wall of palisades around the city limits. These would slow the attacker and frustrate the artillery. Combined with steep slopes behind the palisades, which led up to a defensive position built up in earth, and then sloped down into a deep ditch or empty moat on the other side, defences like these, strikingly primitive in nature, were to prove the saviour of Vienna in 1683. Sorry to spoil the ending for you. 
Although simple, the act of creating huge mounds of earth, covering the fronts of these mounds with large pointed wooden stakes, and levelling the top of the mound to create a makeshift position from which you could lay down suppressive fire, these were the standard tactics of the siege, and they proved devastatingly effective against the Turkish attackers. Surrounding Vienna itself were two concentric walls of this earthen and wooden structuring, each one more formidable than the last, while the third and final line of defence was reinforced with the same materials, but based solidly out of stone. It was here on a series of fortified bastions that the Viennese had placed their heavy guns. The result was a defensive line three rows deep, with carefully planned choke points and interlocking fields of fire that would make mincemeat out of any concentrated assault. The palisades and the heaps of earth behind them would absorb any shells fired by the Turks, and required painstaking teams on hand to deconstruct the defences if an attack was to be successful. To overcome each of the three walls, the Turk would have to essentially scramble up an earthen hill, and once he reached the top, he would be in the crosshairs of the defenders who had previously been assigned to defensive positions. Meanwhile, as the Turk ventured back down on the other side of the hill into the moat and attempted to clamber over the next earthen and palisade wall, he would be slowed and collected amongst his comrades, an ideal target for Viennese sharpshooters and grenadiers alike. Yet, the picture was not all so rosy for the Viennese defenders. While the end result would be impressive by the time the Turks arrived, and plainly if did work in frustrating their efforts, again, sorry again for the spoilers, Vienna itself was a headache of defensive contradictions and shortcomings, sourced from the fact that, at its heart, the city was a 13th century walled town, which had been repeatedly reinforced piecemeal, but without any true nod to a distinct style or defensive plan. Italian engineers in various points of their professions had all visited and improved the city under the emperor's orders over the years, and the last siege in 1529 had proved especially jarring and inspiring for those looking to better defend the imperial home. The style chosen in the 1530s had been to build these shorter, thicker stone walls at greater distance from the city of Vienna itself, with the ramparts at certain points in the walls jutting out from the walls themselves and containing several strange angles in a bid to give the defender maximum visibility over what went down below. Within these ramparts, covered portions had been established and placements for large guns built in to better prepare the defence. In addition, prints of the city show a moat surrounding the walls and the city itself, fed by the Danube and full all year round, save for a shallower point on the side of the city facing towards the west. This gave the appearance of Vienna apparently floating on its own island, accompanied by a set of impressive fortifications, but the appearance of impregnability was deceptive. The fortifications were obsolete almost as soon as they had been built, since although they had been lowered and widened along with the custom of the era in 1530s Europe, they hadn't been lowered enough. The walls were still too high, and they were vulnerable to heavy artillery, which as Vauban demonstrated in the west, would obliterate all but the thickest, lowest of walls. The city had also grown rapidly up against the walls, leading to the appearance of several high-rise buildings and apartments across the Viennese skyline. Now, this did not necessarily matter, but many of these buildings seemed to lean disconcertingly towards one side or the other, aggravated, it is believed, by the fact that the aforementioned moat 
had begun to leak into the foundations not only of the wall, which began to crack as a result, but also into the buildings themselves. Leopold's Hofburg Palace, and this part really gives me the heebie-jeebies, was built up against a tall portion of the wall on the city's southwestern side, and it was said to have been especially damp and unpleasant in places. You can imagine a good amount of mould healthily growing unchecked. In the 17th century, a series of freestanding towers, some 20 feet high, were placed further out from the walls of the city, whereupon soldiers and heavy guns were placed to give the defenders even more opportunities to fight back. By our time, these large towers were connected by the aforementioned earthen walls and palisades. In fact, they kind of connected them all together, and they made up the second wall of defence. In front of this second wall was meant to be the moat, yet considering all the problems experienced with its use over the years, the moat became a kind of deep ditch with some mud at the bottom, and this tactic was repeated in between the second and third line of defences, as well as in front of the first wall of palisades. In short, the defenders and work crews of the heady days of July 1683 had a lot of digging to do. At this point, the spade was as critically important as the gun, and in the event, the siege would prove not only the timeliness of relief, but also the extent of the preparations. For all of its shortcomings, just enough would be done by the 13th of July to hold the Turks just long enough for relief to come. Had one less citizen struck his spade in the preceding days, the results could well have been very, very different. Throughout the centuries, Vienna's position on the Danube had proved both a blessing and a curse. Although it had watered the city and enabled it to grow, the fast-flowing and sometimes volatile Danube, as well as its tributaries which flowed from the hills to the west of the city and sometimes became raging torrents themselves, undermined the efforts of those that sought to build defensive walls. Where the city had access to the Danube along its quays, its defences appeared to possess a gaping hole, because earthenworks, such as seen elsewhere in the city, couldn't be built on the shore where the Danube would simply wash them away. It was here that Vienna's medieval past was at its most blatant, since the old city walls from over 300 years before still stood at this point as the major area of defence. Yet, only a crazy attacker would approach from that point, since they would be completely exposed along the river and plainly unable to position any artillery or rely on the Danube in the event of a crossing. To drive the point home, this portion of the city which looked onto the Danube held several extra gun emplacements, but Karim Mustafa had been made aware of the city's defences enough through a series of maps and had long since planned the best lines of approach. He would not wheel his force around the Danube and attack the eastern portion of the city. Instead, he would attack it at its southwestern point, where the Hofburg Palace snuggled up against the Berg and Lobel Bastions, the name given to the medieval relic of a wall, which stood far too high and remained far too thin to provide an adequate defence. The different portions of this section of wall had been punctuated by two different bastions, the Berg and Lobel, which had been built at two different times. It gave the impression of mismatching the defences and leaving sections of wall nakedly exposed, as the awkward and haphazard building style had plainly failed to adhere to the military maxim of the era and cover the different blind spots along the wall. Thanks to this oversight, the Hofburg itself would be in danger if the enemy chose to attack here, yet it was just at this point that the defenders had worked 
especially hard to reinforce with earth, with palisades and with deeper ditches, and strategically placed guns. Vienna's medieval legacy meant that such hasty improvements, coupled with the moving of several larger guns to this point, proved absolutely vital in the coming struggle. By the time the diggers and work parties put down their spades on the 15th of July, amidst reports and sightings of several Turkish scouts and Tartan auxiliaries in the region, and across the other side of the Danube, Starenberg was at least confident that he, like Count Marsigli at Gior, had done his best. Unlike his Italian peer, though, Starenberg had to believe that his best would be enough to stop the Turks on their ceaseless quest to conquer, lest the foe would be impossibly enhanced and Christendom itself jeopardised. To do this, he would need foreign help. Word had already been sent out to the Habsburgs' only ally in the circumstances, though Saxon and Bavarian contingents were also en route. Jan Sobieski, the King of Poland, was on his way with a force of over 40,000 men to fulfil the terms of the agreement neither party had imagined would ever come to pass. While an apocalyptic scene was unfolding around Vienna, across Europe another scene was underway. This was the story of Vienna's saviours, who marched from the west and northeast. After so many months of painstaking negotiations, these were the results which the somewhat limp diplomatic effort of the Habsburgs had produced. Max Emanuel of Bavaria, son-in-law of Leopold, was en route from the 6th of August with 11,000 of his own men, as well as 8,000 further troops from the Bavarian circles in Swabia and Franconia. John George III, the apparently apathetic ruler of Saxony, was also marching from the west with 9,000 and some of the best light artillery in Europe. This force of roughly 20,000 men represented the Holy Roman Emperor's greatest hope, as well as a damning indication of how little the disparate princes of the empire cared for their emperor's well-being. To Frederick William, the great elector of Brandenburg, for example, the idea of answering any call to defend Vienna at all was the antithesis of his current policy of appeasement with France. Louis XIV continued to factor into the fears and ambitions of those princes who would otherwise have been more open to the idea of supporting their imperial master. In a sense, Louis XIV's armed neutrality and barely veiled threats increased the independence of the Holy Roman Empire's princes, and they granted them the option of pleading in disposition when the emperor came knocking. This policy of refraining from aiding the emperor would take on a new level, of course, in the decades to come. The financial contributions of Benedetto Odescalchi, better known to posterity as Pope Innocent XI, greatly aided Leopold's cause. It was to Leopold's immense fortune that the new pope, elected in 1676, happened to be a fan of the Habsburgs and a rival of Louis XIV. Seeing France as an opponent of the great opportunity open to Christendom to repel the infidel from the Balkans, and of course from around Vienna, Innocent was adamant that the papacy greased the wheels of those who would otherwise have pleaded poverty rather than come to Leopold's aid. Saxony's crack troops, in a size far out of proportion to John George III's income, provided a plain example of the Pope's critical role in the relief of the Siege of Vienna. Proving to be an effective reforming Pope, at least in the financial sense, Innocent's changes to the way the papacy made and spent its money meant that by 1683 it had far greater reserves than ever before. And these were desperately needed and were spent in abundance, not only on Leopold's princely subjects, 
but on wider allies like Jan Sobieski. In the first week of August, Sobieski had roused his men together outside Krakow and began the march down south, where additional troops were picked up and his force swelled to as much as 50,000 men. Those that want more background on how and when Sobieski's large force marched across the barren reaches of the Commonwealth to aid Vienna should definitely check out the exclusive 12-part biography on Jan Sobieski, available to $5 patrons of When Diplomacy Fails, if you didn't know yet. For the record, the way I've set up the two series is no accident, and you'll notice that both the series and this one have begun to coincide with one another quite nicely, I would argue. For the sake of our own convenience, we'll bring our narrative back to Duke Charles of Lorraine, who had anxiously marched back and forth along the opposite bank of the Danube, often in full view of the city, or at least within earshot of the battles going on around it. The sounds of the conflict and the very exposed nature of his troops to Tartars or Ottoman heavy horsemen strained Lorraine's nerves, and he sent repeated scouts to the north and west to see if and when reinforcements would arrive. After a month of anxiety, containing more than a few skirmishes in which he had been forced to chase all smaller Ottoman probing attacks, Lorraine's force was greeted with an emissary sent by Sobieski to announce his arrival in advance. Almost simultaneously, word was received by Lorraine that some serious princely royalty was finally in sight. Duke Max Emmanuel of Bavaria, John George of Saxony and George of Hanover Yes, that George of Hanover, in other words, George I of Britain, were on the way with their collected German army, complete with mercenaries picked up along the way. It was in a dimly lit room in an inn in the otherwise small and unremarkable town of Oberhollebrunn that Sobieski met his colleagues on the 31st of August 1683. Mindful that time was of the essence, but still having to navigate the issues of precedence which dominated international relations in the era, and of course still does in many respects, all sides argued and debated the point of who would march, in what position, and where the best strategy for relieving Vienna could be found. Should they take the longer, more cautious route, as Leopold had suggested, by crossing the Danube upriver to the west, moving very far down south and then approaching Vienna from the south? This would pin Kara Mustafa's men between the relief army and the city garrison, and would have been ideal, but Lorraine was informed enough to appreciate the necessity in getting to Vienna as fast as time would allow. He argued that the strategy which would see the parties cross the Danube a few miles upstream from Vienna and climb towards the Wienerwald, the Vienna Woods, from which they would march downwards and attack the city at the western flank, was the best idea. It was the most direct route, but as a strategy would have been expected by the Grand Vizier's defenders. Overcoming the egos of varying size in the inn that day, each of the potentates made a series of compromises and allowances for one another. Mercifully, it seemed, this was to be one campaign not jeopardised either by self-interest or mutual suspicion among the relieving parties. By the first week of September, a cloud of grim certainty seemed to hang over Vienna. Through the detonation of a series of powerful mines, the Turks had obliterated several points of defence, and they plainly had the advantage over the defenders. Time was critically of the essence at this point, with every hour bringing the potential for a new breakthrough or heroic act of defiance from within the city. Kara Mustafa, remarkably enough, had received word from Tartar scouts and his own auxiliaries of large armies pushing from the west along the Danube, 
further upriver. So preoccupied with Vienna was the Grand Vizier that neither now nor in the weeks before had any effort really been made to reinforce the regions around the city, such as the Vienna Woods to the west, which would have provided a great defensive position from which to launch an attack. The woods were perched atop hilly terrain and descended down the plains to the west of Vienna, over bumpy and disturbed ground. Populated by rivers and streams of varying size, the region appeared on the surface to be a difficult place from which to launch an attack. Mustafa had begun to instruct his men to dig trenches facing in this direction, regardless of these facts, in the first week of September, but he continued to focus wholly on the ongoing siege, believing that at any moment the defenders would surely break and the Ottomans would be free then to storm Vienna and fulfil the Grand Vizier's promise to his sultan. You could say, at this point, and it'll become blatantly obvious later on, Kara Mustafa was a wee bit obsessed about Vienna. On the 8th of September, the birthday of the Blessed Virgin Mary was celebrated in Vienna's St. Stephen's Cathedral, singled out by Kara Mustafa, by the way, as the site for the conqueror's new mosque. Yet it was also celebrated further upriver to the west. It was here, having gathered on the other side of the Vienna woods in force, that the combined armies of Sobieski, John George of Saxony, Charles of Lorraine and Max Emmanuel of Bavaria gathered. Among this force was a cabal of ambitious nobles and gentlemen who had answered the call in the latest crusade against the infidel. In the name of fame and honour on the battlefield did they march, and several were about to witness combat for the first time in their lives. Commanding in the name of the Duke of Saxony was Count Karl von Waldeck, while General Hannibal von Degensburg commanded in Max Emmanuel Bavaria's stead. These princely electors were far too valuable to risk their person in battle, but they did hang back and receive regular updates on the progress of the battles over the coming days. Lorraine remained essential to the enterprise as the glue who held everyone together, while King Sobieski was the exotic, curiously ruddy yet invaluably experienced and confident stamp on the whole process. On the night of the 9th of September, the march up through the Vienna woods began. Adhering to a strict plan, all were together at a high point atop these strategically important mountainous woodlands, at a place called Kallenberg on the 11th of September for the final saying of Mass. From there, the attack would begin in earnest. The march up the Wienerwald was difficult for all involved, and was undertaken at night to prevent any casualties from the Ottomans perched above. Intelligence had informed Lorraine that the region was being used mostly as a spying post, from which the Turks could have a bird's-eye view of what took place across the whole Danubian plain. They could also just about make out the spire of St. Stephen's Cathedral and the smoke which continued to rise from the city's interior. The sight must have convinced these Turkish scouts that victory was soon at hand, yet behind them a morally bound and supremely well-trained force advanced steadily up the hills and through the tangled knots of wooded forest that the region provided. It was a perilous and exhausting trek for the relief force, climbing up sheer cliffs, holding onto trees for stability, and pulling their horses behind them rather than risk riding atop them. Occasionally men had to pass in single file along paths cut into the mountainside for sheep. It wasn't up until the following night on the 10th of September that the first leg of the journey had been completed. Yet another large portion of the journey and the few strategically positioned Turks above them remained to be tackled. 
On the dawn of the 11th of September, 1683, the Turks were slaughtered in their positions, but those that managed to escape scrambled down the hills towards the besieging force to inform Kar Mustafa of what was about to come down the hill after them. Mustafa, to this point only able to assume from which point the relief force would come, now applied his men with this new intel to their defensive line to the west of the city. In a tangle of defensive lines, making use of farmhouses, old stone walls and strategic gullies, the Turks would now seek to make the relief force pay for every centimetre of ground, just as they had been made to pay for it outside Vienna. From the Grand Vizier's tent, he could make out the German insignia and regiments moving across the top of the mountainside, apparently organising themselves for a major attack the following day. Indeed, after a brief rendezvous at the Kallenberg Point, one of the highest in the Wienerwald region, the disparate elements of the relief force fanned out into their positions. Lorraine remained in place at Kallenberg along the left flank, with the Danube on his left side as he marched. Next to them were the troops under Waldeck, who led Saxony's formidable contingent as well as some other units. Beside him were the further contingents of Bavaria and Imperial troops, and finally, spread out on the right flank, was the army of Jan Sobieski. Ahead of this spread-out relief force was difficult ground to descend upon, yet their strength would have to come in their speed to shatter the defending Ottomans and scatter them before they could mount a successful defence. Kar Mustafa had ridden out on the 10th of September with his advisers and moved to a position below the Kallenberg point, where Lorraine was then based, concluding then that the major focus of the enemy would necessarily have to come from this portion. Noting nonetheless that the enemy's formations seemed rather spread out, Mustafa concentrated most of his men on the right flank and ordered further trenches dug, while any men left over would be used to guard the left flank that faced Sobieski. For further security, a large contingent of Tartars would be on hand to repel any advance along Sobieski's flank. An enemy which the King of Poland had faced many times in his life, Sobieski would have known that much would depend on his ability to defeat the Tartars in battle once more. If this could be done, the spread-out nature of Karim Mustafa's defence and the holes it had necessarily left in its line would be open to exploitation. Furthermore, if Sobieski could reach a point in the ground where stable conditions existed for a charge, the incredible wing to SARS could be brought to bear with potentially devastating consequences. Much thus depended on Sobieski, yet much also depended on the tenacity and ability of Sobieski's peers. The attack which began early the following morning on the 12th of September was not destined to be a one-man show, as the experienced King of Poland well knew. At the same time, he also well understood that the act of defeating the enemy often relied on some of the most incredible acts of individual bravery. Determined to carry the day against this great foe of his homeland, Jan Sobieski, as much as his peers, prepared his men on the night of the 11th of September for the ride of their lives. The fate of Western Europe itself seemed to hang in the balance. Next time, we will see how this incredible series of events culminated in one of the most dramatic and significant battles in the history of early modern Europe. So, I hope you'll join me for that. Until then, my lovely history friends and patrons, my name is Zach. Thanks for listening to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 14 of The Long War. I'll be seeing you all soon. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.